Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week from a woman who said, hey, Carol, my husband doesn't seem to be motivated and I need to know what to do about it. How can I make that happen? Well, that's a toughie because truly we all know that we can't make people do what they're not motivated to do. So, of course, I would tell her, hey, what you need to do is expand your own intentional self-care, create some boundaries, and make the decision, what are you going to do about this? Can you live like this? Some people can, some people can't. But what I know to be true is that she has more power than she thinks. And that would be the same for a male partner who wasn't sure how to motivate his sexually addictive wife. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on. And I want you to know that very clearly, no matter who you are, no matter how this addiction has affected you, it is absolutely imperative to know that you have power. And what I mean is that no matter what is going on in your life, you got some choices, and those choices can help you to heal. And it's imperative that you realize that. Now, it also is important to educate yourself on what is sex addiction. What is partner betrayal? How does it affect couples? How does it affect single people? You know, tonight I'm going to be talking to a psychotherapist and a recovering sex addict who's been in 12-step recovery for more than a quarter of a century. And wow, 
one of the things that was amazing about this person is that he really seems to get that it's not about the sex. It's about intimacy, lack of connection, and maybe that brokenheartedness that affects so many addicts. You know, one of the one of the things that I've been taught, as as has he, we both are um, we both were trained by Dr. Carnes, Patrick Carnes, the guru of sexual addiction, and we know that there are really two kinds of addicts. One is the addict who had some sort of abuse or neglect in his childhood, and in some ways used medicating oneself with some form of sexual acting out. It's called trauma reenactment. And then we also know that there is a whole subset of addicts, actually a population, where they got caught up in the compulsion and um, there was no trauma and they thought they were enjoying something that later on they learned they could no longer control. So there you have it. That's the two types. And tonight I have this therapist, this psychotherapist, this CSAT, Certified Sexual Addiction Therapist, Andrew Sesskind, who is going to be talking to us about his new book. And it's called, It's Not About the Sex, Moving from Isolation to Intimacy After Sexual Addiction. So we're all really excited to have him on us. It's always nice to hear information from other professionals who have experienced the addiction themselves. I mean, that's what made Patrick Karn such an incredible teacher, is that he very clearly not only understood sexual addiction, but he also lived it. And he lived it for many, many years with many slips and relapses before he figured out what it, what it took to get healthy. And I'll be interested in hearing what Andrew says, uh, what it takes to get healthy. So, what are you going to do to get healthy? What do you need in your life? What if you don't have a relationship? How do you work on intimacy if you don't have somebody that can help you with that? You better believe I'm going to be asking Andrew Seskine about that, too. Because I have a feeling he has plenty of ideas. And so, I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about Memorial Day. You know, this is a holiday. And unfortunately, many of the men that I talked to, I said, what are you going to do for Monday? What are you going to do for group? And their churches were closed because it was a holiday. So they didn't have a meeting place. Now, if I were going to ask you, 
okay, what happens if your church is closed? Would you be able to find a meeting that was open? That is the question. And if you can't, what are your options? Well, guys, this is the technological world, and, you know, you can do a telephone meeting. Now, you know, if you um, have no availability to get on the Internet, that's what a fellowship list is for. Get somebody to be able to get on and give you a number and a code and a printout so that you can never use the excuse that you can't go to a meeting. I just don't want to hear it because guess what? You can always attend a meeting. And, you know, I've got people that say, oh, yeah, telephone meetings are my favorite. Now, I'm not quite like that. You know that I see many of you for sex addiction coaching via the telephone or Zoom. And Zoom is that uh, amazing HIPAA-compliant Skype-like venue. You know, I send you a number, you click it in, and bam, you and I are on the screen looking at each other. And it's HIPAA-compliant. And I love that. I love that for people that don't have a certified sexual addictions coach available to them. They don't have meetings. So you, you know, they just don't have as much access. But we can work together based on that. Always very, very helpful. And at the same time, what I also wish for, I wish that person were in my office. Because there's nothing better than face-to-face communication. It's just who I am. That's what I love. But there's a lot of benefits to coaching on the phone or via Zoom. So never, ever think that you can't find the help you need. You can't afford it. Because let's face it, if the 12-step groups are available online, that doesn't cost a thing. And you can even get a sponsor online. I remember that I was working with a man whose sponsor was retired. And in his retirement, he scheduled 40 sessions a week with his sponsees. He literally made it a full-time job to be a sponsor to his sponsees. Wow, I thought to myself, that is a dedicated person who wants to give back. And uh, I'm going to ask you, do you think you could practice that 12-step principle? Would you be able to ask yourself, what can I do to give back to my sexual addiction community? How can I develop intimacy in that community? Well, one of the easiest ways for you to develop intimacy is to help them, help people in your fellowship. Check on them. Send a text and say, hey, I'm just checking in on you. How are you doing? It seemed like last week was pretty rough. Or put together a specialized meeting, a workshop that does the 12 steps, or a book club where you're reading only partner-sensitive material. If you have a partner or if you're a single guy, 
you know, maybe you start with some of the oldest literature out there and move into some of the most recent or opposite. You know, there is no doubt that when I talk to different professionals who have written books, they all say, man, as soon as it comes out, it's outdated because this field is changing so much. Now, speaking about changes, you know what I'm going to talk about next. I can't help myself. It's still in the first month of uh, being published. You know that I believe if you really want to develop intimacy and if you have somebody to do that, then you really should get my book, Help Her Heal. I have a couple of gay men that I have seen for a couple of years in coaching, and they're just amazing. And one thing they say to me is, we don't care if it says help her heal instead of help him heal. Um, This empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal has been invaluable in, in creating a script, if you will, of what to do and how to do it. Because I know that when sex addicts feel the pain and they feel the shame, they do one of three things. They either fight and tell the person, stop blaming me, I'm doing the best I can, and they get argumentative. Or they flee, they go into flight mode, and they they just walk out of the room. They feel so bad and so inadequate that they just don't feel like they can handle the issues. And so they, they walk out. And, you know, some of the best marital therapists in the world say walking out and not resolving an issue is absolutely the most damaging. And then that third thing they may do is they may freeze. They may stand there and allow their partner to yell and scream, and they may not know what to do to de-escalate it, to empathize, to normalize, to appreciate the pain they're seeing right in front of them because it brings them so much pain. So that's what this workbook's about, an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal. You can go on Amazon. You can go on my website, Sex Help with Carol Coach. But whatever you do, make it happen. Why? Because if you do the same old thing, the same old thing happens. You know, take your life into your hands and say, I will do whatever it takes to make my life more meaningful. And that always takes you your life to another level. So I'm going to ask you, what's one thing you've done this week to um, really make your life better, you know? What have you done that catapulted your life? Maybe it's that you increased your meetings. That would be helpful, you know? Maybe you um, did check out a friend in the fellowship, and you did connect. And you did know that you made a meaningful difference. Perhaps you started a sex addiction uh, therapy group. Even though you knew you didn't really have the money, but you heard me say, oh, that's one of the best things you can do, Dr. Patrick Carnes said to me, Carol, 
you're not doing a good job in therapy unless you provide these guys an opportunity to be in a group where they can cross-talk and therapeutically work on their issues. So my challenge to you this week is to do something different. Stretch out of that comfort zone and give something a shot, whether it be in the fellowship, whether it be in your healthy circle behaviors, whether it be getting a new book to read. It matters not what you pick. It's the fact that you stretched out of your comfort zone and said, I am going to make my life different. So now, I'm so happy to be talking to a soon-to-be author. This book is not out yet, but it will be out. And we talked and decided we have him on the show. He's really busy. I'm really busy. And that's why we are talking today on Memorial Day. So, Andrew, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you, Carol. I'm pleased to be here and pleased to meet you. Absolutely. And you are a therapist who knows that sex addiction is about brokenness and not necessarily just compulsivity. So I want to ask you a little bit about your life because you've been in 12-step recovery for more than 25 years. Can you share a little bit about your journey? And then I'll ask you about the book. Sure. Of course, Carol. I'm, I'm pleased to, to share a little bit about my background, both professionally and personally. I went to my first meeting in 1994, and I have a quick story about that. I was living in Venice, California at the time, and I wanted to go to a meeting where absolutely nobody would know me. So I drove 30 miles to Pasadena every Sunday night for the Sunday night meeting, and sure enough, I didn't know anybody at that meeting, but that's how scared I was to enter into the fellowship originally. And that was my very first meeting, and I've been uh, both an SBA and SLAA for all of these years. And I have been a therapist since 1991. I finished grad school at UCLA. Uh, I'm a social worker by training, a clinical social worker. And so I've been working in the field of addictions and trauma for all of these years. And I, of course, work in other capacities, but those are really my specialty areas. And so how, what brought you to the, the 12-step community? I mean, what were you actually dealing with? Well, um, as, as you just talked about, brokenness was really my story, just like everyone's story who goes to their first meeting. I call it brokenheartedness in my book, actually. And what I mean by that is generally brokenheartedness comes from a, a backdrop of childhood pain and childhood trauma and just not having the love and nurturing that all of us really need as, as children. And although I was a high achiever throughout my life, actually, I, I, I'm a recovering perfectionist and I have always been high achieving in a lot of ways. I did become really sexually compulsive for, for several years. And, and I see that as a time of, of really wanting to make deeper contact with others. It wasn't so much about the sex. It was more about wanting to make real connections. I had just moved to California 
I wasn't really meeting people in a way that I wanted to. Um, I was a serial dater at the time. I would date people for three months or less. I just didn't know how to connect. So I can very easily say that I'm not only, I wasn't only uh, compulsive sexually, but I, I consider myself to be a love addict, a love avoidant, a codependent, and a lot of other things that have to do with difficulty with relationships. Okay, and so, you know, many of our audience may be tuning in for the first time, and what would you say is the difference between love addiction and sex addiction? It's fairly simple. Sex addiction really has three components to it. It's generally when a person cannot think about anything else throughout the day. So it's an all-consuming obsessive thought pattern that feels like it's very difficult to focus or concentrate on other things. It's from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, there's that obsessive thinking. Um, Number two, there is a feeling of wanting to stop at some point, but not being able to. So it, it, it is out of control. It's at a point where there's a feeling like this isn't working anymore and I know it's not working, but somehow the the sexual compulsion keeps on going. And thirdly, the consequences associated with sex addiction are that the consequences get worse. They're, They're progressive. And so those are the three areas around sex addiction. Love addiction, on the other hand, really has to do with being addicted to the fantasy of love not so much being addicted to love, you know, like, like the song says, but it's more about being really consumed by the idea of romantic love and the idea of creating some kind of fantasy around people rather than getting to know them slowly and, and gradually in a way that that's more able to, to see what the relationship is all about. It's all about projections in, in psychological terms. Yeah, that makes sense. And what I know, you were talking brokenheartedness, but certainly with love addiction, there almost inevitably is significant abuse or neglect that creates an attachment issue that comes out looking compulsive. Um, And so love addiction is all about healing that wound by finding the right person, but in essence, what you have to be able to do is heal yourself without the other person so that you're healthy enough to be with another person. Would you not agree? I, I agree fully. And, and just to expand on that, I also would add that healthier attachment is when we're able to rely on reliable people. And so if we can count on somebody and somebody is really dependable that's a healthier attachment, right? That's one aspect of a healthier attachment. But oftentimes attachment patterns, like you said, they start in in childhood and oftentimes are developed in such a way that that fantasy and um, trying to create some kind of uh, experience with someone else when it's really not there is, is more the focus, and, and that's, of course, very problematic and, and excruciating. Absolutely, and you, you said that really well. So 
Now, here you are. You've been part of the 12-step program for 25-plus years, and you have some um, defining philosophies about sex addiction is not about sex. It is about brokenheartedness and deep-rooted challenges with intimacy. So can we talk a little bit about that? When you say deep-rooted challenges with intimacy, what are you referencing? Right. So like we were talking about a moment ago, it may look like out-of-control sexual behaviors on the surface, but underneath it really has to do with misfired attempts to, to make contact with others. Like I said, that was my story at one time. But I also say that if you scratch the surface of a sex addict, you're going to find a love avoidant or a love addict who really has all kinds of challenges with developing real intimacy. And generally, again, I, I look at this around the blueprint of childhood, and usually it has to do with families that just didn't know how to express love to one another or, or how to nurture one another. Oh, okay, so that makes total sense. You know, tell me how you believe that sex addiction, compulsive sex, out-of-control sexual behaviors, or problem addict sex, how are they similar and how are they different? Okay, <laughs> this is a great question. I actually see all four as more or less in the same neighborhood. In other words, the term sex, the, the term sex addiction was given to us by Patrick Carnes early on in the research and understanding of, of out-of-control sexual behaviors. And it, it's an important term, and it's a term that's become uh, really worldwide as far as uh, as far as describing out-of-control sexual behaviors or compulsive sex. But in my way of looking at things, I don't believe in pathologizing sex or sexual behavior in any way. I consider myself to be a sex-positive therapist, meaning that I really am working with folks who want to have healthier sexual lives and want to integrate sex and intimacy in healthier ways. So addiction in general, as a term, it, it comes from the medical model. It comes from um, what sometimes we call the disease model. And although I believe wholeheartedly in, in 12-step, um, it's, it's, it's complicated because with sex, I don't want anybody to, to make it right or wrong or bad or good. That, that doesn't fit for my language. I really want, I want to explore and be curious about how somebody can have the most satisfying sexual experiences. Well, that makes total sense. So that's, that's an interesting way to look at that. Now, when you're thinking recovery from sex addiction, as a longstanding therapist who has been in recovery himself, what do you believe are the primary goals for that long-term recovery? From sex addiction? Sure. It, it's a great question, and it's really different depending on an individual. In other words, I, I would never dictate to somebody else what their long term goals specifically were for them. But what I would say is that through the years, 
there are a few themes that are, are most evident. One has to do with what I said a moment, moment ago, which is integrating sex and intimacy in healthier ways. So we can say that very uh, clinically, how do we integrate sex and intimacy? But what we're really talking about is having people have relationships that work for them better and that are something that they get to design over time and figure out for themselves what works and what doesn't work and what's safer and what's more satisfying, what's more fun and, and sexy and enjoyable. And um, so that's definitely probably the umbrella idea of integrating sex and intimacy. Other than that, I also talk a lot about this idea of relying on reliable people. So how do you find those people in your life, whether it's in your family, in your 12-step group, in your work setting, anywhere that you go, who are those people that you can truly depend upon and, and utilize as support that will be there through thick and thin? And developing those kind of deeper relationships is really part of what makes us tick. I mean, we know now that we're biologically wired for connection. So we need connection in order to thrive, and we need connection in order to have a thriving recovery. So the other thing that I, I also talk about is this idea of connection. What does connection really mean? So to me, there's three, three uh, pillars of, of connection. One has to do with connecting to yourself and your internal world. Another has to do with connecting with others, reliable folks in your life. And the third, hopefully, is connecting with a power greater than yourself, whatever that means to you, whether it's God, whether it's nature, whether it's your pet. Uh, it doesn't matter what that is, but that's also uh, essential as a, a foundational part of long-term sustainable recovery. Okay, that makes sense. And so tell me, what inspired you? to write this book because this book is all about what we're talking about today. Oh, so many things inspired me, but I would have to say that sitting in the 12 step rooms for all these years inspired me in kind of a bittersweet way. Really the rooms have folks, as you know, who are so devoted to their recovery and so inspiring in terms of how they expand their lives and really, uh, give to others and 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 give back to um, the program, et cetera. And you know, those are are. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay, um, where where were we going, Carol? What was the question? Well, again? we were talking about why did you write the book? Oh, you the know, book. <laughs> yeah, right. the book. <laughs> that 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 thing. That's right. That's right. Um, so that's very funny. So, um, I was inspired both, <laughs> I was inspired by both people in the rooms and by people in my office. It's really as simple as that because sitting in my office for all these years with, with folks who are interested in living better lives in recovery and sitting in the rooms with people who want to live better lives in recovery was a wonderful thing, but the catch is that sometimes there's there's people who are still suffering. So they might be sexually sober, right? They've stopped their 
out-of-control, dangerous, risky behaviors, but internally they may feel lonely, they may feel scared, they may feel rageful. They just haven't worked on on ways of truly having a, a life that works for them. And and so the inspiration for the book really was to reach those people who are still having difficulties, even after working the steps, being a sponsor, going to meetings, maybe even going to therapy, but haven't talked about or, or explored deeply some of the themes in the book, like, just to give you an idea, like, like um, narcissism, uh, regulating the nervous system, um, contentment, um, kind of a new spin on boundaries. So I, I just feel that I've, I've, through osmosis, I've collected a lot of data. This is not an academically driven book. It's not a research book. I did interview half a dozen people in long-term recovery to illustrate some of the things that I uh, wanted to illustrate. But it's really about uh, sort of an organic look at how do we live uh, recovery and sex addiction with, with more fulfillment. Well, that makes total sense. And everybody typically has a different reason to write a book. And I believe, you know, Andrew, that it's probably you knew you were gathering a lot of wisdom. 25 years is a long time to be in recovery and to be helping other people, the epitome of the 12-step work. And writing a book is that next level where you can get your information out there and disseminate it to greater amounts of people. And, and as you said to me earlier, start the dialogue um, so that people can discuss what they agree or disagree with. And it is all about dialogue. That's what intimacy is all about. So I really admire the fact that you have an upcoming book. It's not about the sex moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. And where is it in terms of the publishing phase? Well, thank you so much for mentioning this and, and for asking. Uh, it is going to be released on June 11th of the next month, which is just around the corner. June 11th, 2019 is the, is the release date. It's already available for pre-order on Amazon. It'll be on Amazon full-fledged on, on June 11th, and then we'll just take it from there. Wow, so that's right around the corner, and yes. that's super exciting. It's like birthing a baby. You wouldn't know about that per <laughs> se, but do you have right. any kids? <laughs> I have a copper so, spaniel, but no children. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. I got a fur baby myself. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. now let me just ask you some specific questions about the book and about your own philosophy. And by the of way, course. for our listening audience, if you want to check out Andrew's website, it is www.westsidetherapist.com, or you can email him at andrew at westsidetherapist.com. So just write that down and... If you need to check in with Andrew about anything, I'm sure he'll be absolutely happy to speak with you. Now, you obviously have said earlier that meaningful connection is a long-term goal. And let's face it, for some addicts, 
they don't even know what meaningful connection is. So mm-hmm. how would you define that? Well, it's kind of basic, but rather profound. For me, it's always been about finding my people. Like I said before, it could be friends, it could be family, it could be colleagues, it could be 12-step buddies. And I've learned through the years that there's my people and there's the rest of the world. And it's really my, my um, mission in life to locate my people and, and to really cultivate those relationships. So that, that's the first thing. It's also an, an internal job. You know, it, it's about me constantly working on myself in therapy with the very best therapist I can find. I've been with my therapist for 10 years and I told him he's not allowed to retire or go anywhere because he's such a foundation for me. And, and he really challenges me to be more in the moment with him, which I believe is part of recovery is not living in the past, not living in the future, but what's it like to feel more at peace and hopefully live in the moment and as an aside, he, he, he makes me laugh all the time. So he helps me take myself less seriously and, and really slow down and look closer at, at what's going on in, inside of me. Um, so in program, because I, I really want to talk about that for a moment, to me it's about staying connected through meetings, of course, through uh, having a sponsor, being a sponsor, uh, working the steps over and over again. And, and I also go on 12-step retreats usually twice a year. So it's an ongoing connection with God in my case or a power greater than yourself, whatever you may call that. And if I'm connected to all of these things, right, if I'm connected to the people in my life and my therapist, my sponsor, uh, my 12-step meetings, et cetera, my life is going to go smoother. But if I disconnect, in any way, which we all do at times, it usually means that my life and my recovery will be a bit bumpier. So, so the goal hopefully is to come back to connection as soon as I can and to really do whatever it takes uh, to, to make that more sustainable. Well, that makes sense. And certainly, you know, People really need and want that connection, but sometimes are afraid of it. When we talk about intimacy avoidance or intimacy anorexia, um, and, and I believe that you believe, let me just double check with this, but that <laughs> sure. oftentimes childhood trauma is at the foundation of the lack of meaningful, you know, connection. So can you Tell me what you believe about childhood trauma and how it relates to sex addiction. Right. So I wouldn't say that all people who become sexually compulsive have had some type of trauma in their childhood. I don't think we've shown that in the, in the research. But many people have had some kind of ruptures. And what I mean by that is, anything less than nurturing, anything that has caused uh, pain that was too much to, to process at the time. And so sometimes it looks more visible, like in physical abuse or um, emotional or verbal abuse. But 
you know, neglect, <clears throat> as an example, can be just as wounding or constant misattunements or constant criticism. All of those things can be just as wounding. wounding. So I, I couldn't agree more. I, I believe that the childhood often sets people up for, for problems and often for intimacy avoidance because it's too scary to get too close. And, and that's why I, I always recommend people start small. So if, if I, of course, if I'm a therapist to a client, that's, that can be the first template for hopefully a relationship that a client can trust, can feel safe, and can relax with me and, and be themselves with me and can be, really be fully themselves and know that I'm going to accept them and, and be with them no matter what they're going to share with me. Uh, the same thing goes for finding a sponsor. It's not easy to do sometimes, but finding a sponsor who can really be unconditional and can really accept your whatever you bring to them is, is part of what starts the ball rolling start towards feeling more comfortable with others. And, and then, of course, finding people in program one by one who you relate to, who you can make outreach calls to, et cetera, um, makes a huge difference. So it's, it's really just one person at a time. Well, and I get that, and I so agree with you, but not everybody's trauma, uh, not everybody's sex addiction is related to a childhood trauma. Before you came right. on the show, I was talking about we certainly see a percentage of sex addicts that do have trauma, and a lot of times their sex addiction is directly related to trauma reenactment, but not always. Right. So I'm glad that you also agree. Now, you know, you have a chapter in your book entitled Regulating the Nervous System. How does that apply to sexual addiction recovery? Right. Regulating the nervous system, I believe, is it really reduces vulnerability to relapse. And what I mean by that is regulation inside in your nervous system is when you feel most comfortable with yourself and most comfortable in your skin. It's, it's really where you feel more resilient, where you feel more resourceful, sometimes even buoyant. Now, we all get dysregulated at times. Sometimes it, it looks like rage or panic. Sometimes it looks like disconnection or shutting down. But when we have a prolonged dysregulated state, this can lead to sex addiction. It, it's very common because when we're dysregulated, we'll do everything we can to feel better. And, and going for anonymous sex or for any kind of compulsive sex is actually an attempt to feel better or sometimes to feel less because we don't want to feel the pain. Now, what we're really talking about with regulation of the nervous system is, is being aware of what's happening in your body. We sometimes call it somatic awareness. And to know when you're feeling more regulated or when you're feeling less regulated or dysregulated. And coming back to a regulated state without acting out sexually is really what we want to see, of course. And that, that can be very simple strategies like deep breathing, um, like getting an app that has different kinds of relaxation strategies. Even petting your dog can, or your cat can regulate your nervous system. So 
So there's a lot of different ways to regulate your nervous system. Generally, it's done in the company of a somatically trained professional who does something, and this is, these are big words, but like somatic experiencing, brain spotting, um, EMDR, all, all these different trauma healing modalities are ways of regulating the nervous system and learning about what's happening inside if you're regulated or dysregulated because this dysregulation um, is, is really going to make you way more vulnerable to slips and relapse. But when you're more regulated more of the time, chances are you're going you're going to have a more sustainable recovery. Oh, absolutely. And truly any addict, even if they don't, feel like they are plagued with anxiety or panic attacks. Anybody can use the kind of skills you're talking about in that chapter. There are always times that we really need to regulate ourselves, no matter whether we're sitting in a car in traffic or we just experienced a major attachment issue with somebody we love and it reminds us of what we didn't get met as a child. So, I'm glad you're addressing that. And would you tell our listening audience, they've heard a lot from me on EMDR as I'm trained and uh, certified. But tell mm-hmm. us what brain spotting is. Because brain spotting is, is not a new therapy, but relatively new. In the last, what would you say, decade and a half? Right. It, it was founded in 2003. And it's not the easiest thing to explain without visuals, but I'll do my best to share with you what what it's about. So brain spotting uses the visual field to look at different points in your vision that either are more activating or less activating. Now, with EMDR, for instance, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, uh, what happens is there's a back and forth usually in some form or another. So the visual field or our eyes are, are, are asked to go back and forth. Now, David Grand, who, who discovered brain spotting, used to be an EMDR specialist. And what he found when he was doing EMDR, he slowed it down. And then he saw a lot of processing ha- happening on one point. So um, I'll tell you just briefly the story. He was working with a figure skater who we had worked with for about a year using EMDR and she kept on missing this one jump. And in order for her to become a more professional and higher level skater, she had to make this jump. It was just part of her next level um, kind of skill that she needed. And she had a lot of falls, a lot of injuries in her background. And she also had, a lot of um, childhood uh, pain from, from some difficulties in her family without going into all the details. And so he slowed down the movement and, and actually stayed on one particular spot. And with that one particular spot, it was about a 30 minute period of time where she just was processing from this one spot. She actually had an eye wobble she um, was really heavy into what, what he felt was the activation that was showing up as a result of all of her background um, injuries and, and trauma. 
Um, long story short, he sent her to the rink because she, she uh, practiced every single day. And the next morning, she called him up and, and she said, Dr. Grand, you're never going to believe this, but I couldn't miss the jump. Every single time that I tried it, I couldn't miss it. And so basically what that told him was that, that through that, that brain spotting session, when he came to call brain spotting, she processed out all of those things that for whatever reason hadn't been processed before. And, and so it was a very exciting discovery and I've been doing it for several years now and my clients get a lot of relief, a lot of perspective from their trauma and a lot of relief from the activation that tends to be residual from their trauma. So it's a longer story than that, but that's the, um, the idea of, of what it's about. And it's also about regulation and dysregulation, but that's just another another piece of it. Absolutely. Well, no, and that was a fascinating story, and I think everybody could relate to there are things in their life that they have also had specific performance anxiety about or fears and anxieties about. So um, thank you for sharing that example. Now, sure. When I was looking at your stuff, there is no doubt that you, like I, really believe in a strength-based approach to addiction recovery and actually to any kind of psychotherapy. I'm a a life coach and a mental health therapist for 37 Mm -hmm. years, and Mm -hmm. I really believe in doing that delicate balance of helping somebody heal, talking about their wounding, but also talking about their resiliency. So I want to ask you, the strength-based approach that you tend to use for addiction recovery, tell me what the themes are of this positive psychology support that you seem to use in your recovery. Sure. And I think we're cut from the same cloth, Carol. That's so interesting because I, I worked from more of a deficits model for many years, meaning that I, I looked only at the past and and the present. And I didn't look so much at the future until maybe 15, 20 years ago when positive psychology and and coaching started to explode. But what I love about positive psychology is, is that it focuses on what's going right rather than what's going wrong. So there, there was a, a cover of a time magazine. It said the science of happiness. And I, I thought to myself, what does that really mean? And, and what they were doing was they were studying what truly makes people happy around the globe. And, and I'm so interested in, in that, both as a person in recovery and working with folks who are in uh, recovery from addictions and, and trauma, because oftentimes in the therapy room, there's so much focus, actually in the 12-step room too, there's so much focus on, on the past. And what's so great about positive psychology and coaching is that it's, it's about leveraging one's strength. It's about the future. It's about core values. Um, it's, it's about themes such as gratitude, forgiveness, flow, and and so, you know, in my book, I, I try to infuse a lot of that. I have a, a chapter called Cultivating Contentment, and, 
And the action steps that I really look at the most are values clarification, um, visioning, and what I call swimming with the dolphins, which was uh, given to me by one of my colleagues. But that's basically uh, relying on reliable people. So it's really, I think, energetically, it's really exciting for a lot of clients because they feel very, they forget about those parts of themselves that they really are interested in in terms of purpose and meaning and what gives what why do they wake up in the morning what what gives their life purpose etc i i get excited myself when i think about positive psychology because of what a tidal wave of positivity is brought to the whole psychological field well yes and i really believe I remember when I was first doing psychotherapy and one of the things that I recognized that if I were too positive and I saw too many strengths in a client, they (laughs) might actually even doubt my ability to assess because they didn't even see it in themselves. So I slowed that down to some degree and I really talked about how you have to be able to know some of your strengths. And Swimming with the dolphins, I always say I'm a dolphin girl from that book because you're either a shark or a dolphin or somewhere in between. That's right. That's right. I love it to death. Now, yeah. we have to end, but before we do, can you share with us, you know, what makes, what do you believe makes individuals prone or vulnerable to slips and relapses? Because, you know, this is the hardest addiction in the world to have continued success. It's a big question with a lot of answers, but I will share a few ideas of what seems to be the the slippery slope for a lot of folks. And this was actually part of the inspiration for my book as well, was to focus on what seems to be the stumbling blocks and, and what's difficult for people to sustain their recovery. So I would say that the biggest thing, again, is disconnecting from reliable relationships. So when somebody pulls away, starts to get into old isolative type patterns, that's generally one of the biggest red flags. I also feel that unresolved shame is is often very under the wire, meaning that it can be there and people either aren't talking about it or exploring it. And, and so, you know, as Brene Brown says, you know, shame is given to us by others and shame is healed through others. So healing shame is just so, so important. I also believe something that we don't talk a whole lot about is unresolved grief. And what I mean by that is that grief can come in lots of shapes and forms. I'm not just talking about uh, death, although certainly deaths are part of grief, but sometimes it's grieving the loss of the addiction. Sometimes it's grieving relationships or breakups that were super painful and haven't truly been dealt with completely. So unresolved grief is another area that often is under the wire. And then as I keep talking about uh, again and again today, dysregulation of the nervous system if it's prolonged and not addressed, is really, really difficult to sustain. It's almost like um, white-knuckling it. 
when someone is dysregulated in their nervous system uh, for too long of, of a, of a um, period of time. And then, of course, keeping secrets of any kind, you know, not doing a thorough 10-step uh, can be uh, problematic and can keep people more uh, in sort of a compartmentalized way. And, um, and so in general, I think slips and, and relapses can happen for so many reasons, but those are probably the top reasons that I believe have shown up through the years um, in, in my office and in, in my rooms that I've gone to. Well, that makes total sense. Andrew, again, I, I look forward to seeing this book in my hands, and I'm going to remind our listening audience that you can get Andrew's book by going to Amazon. The upcoming book is going to be released, um, you said June 6th? June 11th, actually. June 11th, and it's called It's Not About the Sex, Moving from Isolation to Intimacy After Sexual Addiction. And I am talking to Andrew Suskind, and he has a wealth of information, so I hope you go out and buy his book. And his website is www.westsidetherapist.com, and you can email him at andrew at westsidetherapist.com. So continued success, and I wish you the best. I just uh, released my book a couple of months ago, so I get how exciting this is. Congratulations. Thank you, Carol, and to you as well, and, and thank you so much for having me this evening. Absolutely. Make it a good Memorial Day. I know that we've just got a few more hours. Thank you. You too. All right. Take care. You too, Carol. Bye-bye right. now. Bye-bye. So that was Andrew Sunshine, and he is releasing his book on June 11th. And I hope that you have a chance to look at it. It is, it's not about the sex, moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. Super important. Lots of uh, good information. You can tell the man has a lot to give. So, as I always say at the end of every show, there's only one of you at all times I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. I want to challenge you to do something and step out of your comfort zone. And hey, one of the things I really like you to do is to identify at least five personality strengths that you like about yourself. Maybe you're generous. Maybe you're kind. Maybe you're compassionate. Maybe you're bright. Maybe you're brilliant. Write those things down and post them somewhere you can see them because you know, I believe 100% that an addict in good recovery is better than 95% of those men and women out there. Now, you make it a good day, and we'll see you next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. Have a good one. <laughs>